Okay. New people, welcome. We have a rule over here. There's no back row. Come. <laughs> Sit up front, enjoy. So feel comfortable. Rather not? You're getting away from fans. You okay? You want to come up? Okay. Just feel at home, please. No, no back seats here. Guys, today's topic, Garden of Amuna, is... Today's topic is peace and tranquility. Okay, it's a little piece in the book. And obviously, as we've done in the past, I want to take it through a whole different perspective. Peace and tranquility comes through emuna faith. That is what we're talking about. We need to define peace and tranquility. We need to define faith. The simple definition of peace and tranquility with emuna is that the real, the real killer of any peace and tranquility is worry. When you worry, you don't have peace and tranquility. When you don't worry, then you have peace and tranquility. The Talmud actually says that safek and simcha ketarat hasfekot. There is no joy like getting rid of doubt. And if you look at what the Talmud is saying, it's actually telling you that you'd rather already get the bad news and start dealing with it than sitting waiting. Is it bad? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it good? That drives you nuts. If you know that things are going to be a little bit bumpy, okay, let me know and let's get to work. But the consistent worry, doubt, drives a person nuts. When a person has emunah, he doesn't have worry and he doesn't have doubt. I know the end of the story. Now I have to figure out the journey. I have a friend who is actually, he comes to this class every once in a while. And uh, he used to always tell me, he had this saying, he's from Curaçao. <laughs> and I say that not as a geographical statement, but as a state of mind statement. And he always used to tell me, Rabbi, God gave us the answers and told us to figure out the questions. Okay. I, uh, I played with this a lot. It's very interesting. Because I think what that really tells us is God told us the final destination and now figure out the journey. Many times when people sit with me dealing with different types of counseling, usually it gets to a point where they keep on telling me, I don't know what to do, Rabbi. I don't know what to do. And at some point, there's just that quiet look from me to the person, the person to me, where I softly tell the person, you know what you have to do. The real question is, how are you going to do it? Emunah helps us with that. Emunah helps us to understand there is no uncertainty. There's discomfort. There's the doing what you don't feel comfortable doing. There's embracing what you don't want to embrace. But at some point... You realize, okay guys, it's what we need to do. And when you do that, with all the distastefulness that comes with it, but you're not missing shalom and menucha. You're not missing peace and tranquility. An example, share with you a little secret about me. I am slightly claustrophobic, not with objects, but with humans. <laughs> you want to put me in real torture? Put me in the middle seat on a plane. You wanted to add on to the torture, make it a flight to Israel. 
it's I don't do well with that. Give me the window is my nicest thing, aisle is second nicest, put me in the center seat and you will find me standing in the back most of the flight. And when I used to travel to Israel, get onto a plane, it wasn't very comfortable for me. But then I learned very quickly that when they announced the cabin doors are now shut, to leave go. The next time I get out of this metal box will be in Tel Aviv. Now what are you going to do? Are you going to spend now 12 hours feeling, ah? Uh, or just, hey, I know the destination, I'm getting out of this plane in Tel Aviv, but <laughs> there's a journey here. Once you put things in that perspective, it's the middle piece. The beginning and the end, I know. I'm certain about it. It's the middle piece. That's what Amunah does. It allows you to have Shalom and Menucha. Take it to the next level. Not only does it allow you to have Shalom and Menucha because of the destination, but Amunah helps you deal with the journey because in Judaism, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. One of the things you people need to understand if you want to ever embrace with the laws of Shabbat. The laws of Shabbat is not about the destination, it's about the journey. For example, there is no problem with eating hot food on Shabbat. There is a problem with heating up the food on Shabbat. You follow? Most of the laws of Shabbat, people are all bothered by the loopholes. You rabbis, you create loopholes and everything. What's the difference? If I put on a timer or this or that? And the answer is, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. So Amuna doesn't only help you by telling you the answer, so don't worry about the question. But Amuna is also telling you that every moment of the question is okay. So it's not just that the destiny is okay, it's the journey is okay, step by step. That is how you would normally handle the topic of Amuna brings to Shalom and Menucha. I want to take you to a total different perspective of Shalom and Menucha. What I said until now is needless to say, it's what's brought down in the books, it's right. But let's get behind the scenes. Let's talk about a deepened dimension of what Amuna is what Menucha is, what peace and tranquility really is, and why Amuna is the only way to get there. So until now, I was just telling you how to deal with negativity, get it out of your life, focus on the reality. The reality is God is good, God does good, the end of the story is good, and if you really have Amuna, you realize that even as the plot is building, and we're creating that conflict, it's still good. It's not the end chapter of the story that's good. Every chapter is a step in the process of goodness. But what we're going to talk about here is a total different perspective. We're going to get into the bird's eye perspective. You see, because what I was handling until now was the worm's eye perspective. How the worm perceives the sky. And one of my favorite sayings that I got one day in the email was, the early bird gets the worm, the early worm gets eaten. So you've got to be careful how you see yourself. Very different. We're looking here at the Garden of Amunah from the bird's perspective, the bird's eye view, not the worm's eye view. So let's get into what we're talking about. What is the concept of peace and tranquility? 
a woman in her final stages of pregnancy, right? <laughs> what is peace and tranquility? The definition of peace and tranquility is when you have two opposites that get along. A father of one, more than one child, a mother of more than one child, will tell you that is the definition of peace and tranquility. To have two kids that get along with each other. The rest is commentary. So when we talk about peace, shalom, shalom is not represented in Aleph, because if there's one, there's no peace. It's not represented in two, because two is a dichotomy. It's represented in three. The power of three is that two opposites join and become one. So the only definition of true peace and tranquility is when there is the oneness of three. When you have a right and a left, and you realize that the right and the left are both equal, united expressions of the center. But as long as you have two, you will deal with turbulence. I want to take it further. When I say that when you have two, you will deal with turbulence, I'm not only talking about in times of doubt, I'm not only talking about in times of losses, I'm talking about even in times of victory. So, if we have a country in a state of security, we're secure, thank God. But we know that at our borders are consistently lurking an enemy, so even when we're in the upper hand, we're still not in Minucha. There is no tranquility. Drop your guard for a second, and they're back up at you. And even when you're not dropping your guard, your force of energy is coming from contraire, not from peace. So what's happening here is that when you have two, there's me and there's the enemy. There's goodness and there's evil. So even in the moments where goodness prevails over evil, goodness is still not in a sense of minucha and shalom. There is no peace and there is no tranquility. So what I'm sharing with you here is that the definition of shalom and minucha is not the absence of war. It is the absence of an enemy that would even produce war. So even when the enemy is held at bay, there is no shalom and minucha. In our lives we know that that we will not experience the true experience of Shalom and Menucha until Mashiach comes. Why? Because even a person who's in control of their thought, speech and action, even a person who has their emotions at check, even a person who has redefined their perception of intellect and reality, but as long as there is a Yetzirah lurking, even when I'm in shul, I'm not in peace. Because I know that after I finish in shul, I'm going to step out into the world, and once again I'm going to be dealing with all the challenges of the reality, today's reality of life. So shalom and minucha is really 
stru- it's, te- it's challenged by the fact that there exists two. Me and the enemy. And that's why all, all forms of negativity, they mess up my feathers. And even when my feathers are in line and they're held at bay, I'm still not at peace. The eyes are consistently moving. Where are they coming from now? Where's the attack coming from? Where's my Yitzhahara sneaking up on me now from? At this point, I want to introduce to you a piece of, I believe it's a Zohar. I believe that's the words that's quoted. Kemoshul hazona bezohar. As the metaphor of the prostitute in the Zohar. What is that metaphor? Gives a very interesting metaphor to understand what the Yetzahara is. Says that there was a king whose head was a prince. Now the prince is being brought up by the absolute purity and greatness of the environment of the palace. But there's a problem. Famous saying, if you want to create a responsible child, you need to give him responsibilities. A prince cannot be formed in the palace. A prince needs to know what it means that everything is available, everything is possible, and yet, no, you can't do everything. You can't live that type of life. You need to be able to deal with it. I tell my kids over and over, you kids are not dealing with what I dealt with. You see, I was protected. Growing up in Borough Park, how many challenges could you have? But today, if you live in Jerusalem, but you have the internet in your house, you have everything available to you. So I told my children that while my parents were doing the traditional format of parenting, which is protect my child, I can't do that for you. What I need to do for you is to teach you how to be sitting and looking at evil, knowing no thank you. So I can't protect you, I need to empower you. That's a whole different understanding. So the king realizing that the prince, which is being molded, formed in the palace, needs to get a taste of temptation. If he doesn't taste temptation, we don't know what will happen when temptation comes knocking on his door. So he hires a prostitute. Now understand that the prince is not exactly going to be attracted to that type of woman. So the king tells this woman, this is all the metaphor, the king tells this woman, I will provide you with jewelry, with a hairdo, with makeup, with clothing, with perfume, I'm going to redo you so that you even have a chance of getting onto my son's radar screen. And then he tells the woman, now I want you to tempt my son. The Zohar takes it to the next stage. Very interesting. What is the king hoping for? The king is obviously hoping for only one thing. My son needs to overcome temptation. So while he is hiring this woman, telling this woman what you need to do, 
he's actually focusing on this woman failing. What does the son want? Obviously the son is a loyal son. The son wants to get rid of this temptation, overcome it. Those two were no-brainers. Here is the deep part of this metaphor. What does this woman of ill repute want? And what our sages tell us is that this woman of ill repute is a loyal subject of the king. Knows why the king hired her. Knows what the king wants. So as she's tempting the boy, putting everything she can into having the boy succumb, what do you think she's praying for? She's praying for the son to win. And then the Zohar finishes up by saying, that is the story of your Yetzirah. So God creates an angel. Beautiful, no? God creates an angel who's called Yetzirah, who is a loyal subject of God and is doing its job a little too good. But what do you think that Yetzirah is standing praying for as it is trying to lure you and tempt you into sinning? Because the Yetzirah understands that its deepest desire is that God's desire should be fulfilled. God created me for a purpose. I want that purpose to be actualized. That emunah, that emunah of looking into the eyes of your enemy and knowing that your enemy is praying for your victory brings you shalom and minucha even while you're going through temptation. Because there is no two sides. There's only one side to this. God is everything and everything is God and everything that exists exists only to fulfill God's will. So my Sahara all of a sudden isn't my enemy. <laughs> Should be careful when I say that, right? Because I take that too literally. <laughs> I actually have a very good friendly relationship with him, unfortunately. But the point here being, is all of a sudden I have Shalom and Menucha. Because I realize that my Sahara is rooting for me. And that when I do succumb, he isn't looking at God. Ha! He's actually crying for me. Why did you do this? You pulled yourself down. You pulled me down. Because I know why God really created me. So the shalom and menucha in the deepest spiritual struggles that I go through is in knowing that there is no God versus Satan. There is God handing me opportunity. And that's a whole different ball of wax. When I look at my Yetzirah as opportunity, gift wrapped in temptation, it's different. There isn't the inner confusion. That's a different perspective of Shalom and Menucha peace and tranquility that comes through emuna. Because what emuna offers me is the deepest emuna offers me that God is everything and everything is God. So that Yetzirah 
is a piece of God serving God and is doing nothing more to me than offering me a deeper relationship of serving God. Temptation equals opportunity. When we talk about emunah, we don't talk about having faith that there is a God. That's a no-brainer. A painter begets an artist. A creation begets a creator. Break it down to the Big Bang, the gases. Keep on breaking it down, keep on breaking it down. But there is something there, no matter how you look at it, that had to start from something. And if God was able to create that little something, He was able to create the complex something. So you don't really need a munah to believe that there's a God. If science always works on the extrapolation that a child tells me of parents, and it goes further and further and further, then creation tells me of Creator. So for a Jew... The fact that there is a God isn't a Munah. A Munah kicks in in the last word of the Shema. Hashem Echad. Now the word Echad doesn't just mean that there's one God and not many gods. The Munah of the Jew is not that we don't believe in the Greek mythology of many gods. We have one God. No. That also is not a Munah. Emunah for a Jew is Nashem Echad. What does the word Echad mean? We break down in the town with the word Echad. Aleph is one God. Chet is eight, seven heavens and one earth. And Dalit are the four directions of the earth. In simple English, Emunah is that God is everything and everything is God. That is the Emunah that brings peace and tranquility. So when I'm looking at trying times, spiritually or physically, I am not looking at God's enemy, because how can a piece of God be God's enemy? If God is everything and everything is God, there is no two forces pulling me away. There is just what we call in Kabbalah, Or Yashar and Or Chozeh. The straight light and the rebound light. Opportunity is found in the rebound light. The Yitzhahara pushing me in one direction, causing me to dig up deeper commitment to go in the other direction. The metaphor that I once used is, and then I'll call Dr. Rebbe's metaphor. metaphor that I once used is, that if you have a person, who we should never know from this, but is being challenged by a secretary. He's a married man, and he's being challenged by a secretary. In the beginning, of course, it's cute, it's fun, but then it gets to a point where to be or not to be. And that's the moment where hopefully, well actually, that's not the moment, hopefully at the first beginning he straightened it out, but let's say he didn't. When it comes to that dead end where he needs to decide to be faithful or not to be faithful, and he decides then to be faithful, and he lets her know, listen, I'm sorry if you felt I was misleading you. This shouldn't have happened in the first place. The whole flirting should have never started. You really need to go somewhere and find a different job. And be well. I wish you all the best. Do you know what the beauty of that scene is? That his wife will never know why, when he came home that night, he gave her 
a greater hug and a deeper affection. Because what this secretary offered him was to really understand how much his wife means to him. Temptation does that. When you see the other side and you're forced to take a stand, all of a sudden you realize that what was in cruise control, neutral, it was just taken for granted. It just is. All of a sudden you come home and you look into her eyes realizing for the first time how long I haven't acknowledged, actualized, brought forth what this woman really means to me. And the only reason I know today is because I paid a price. I took a stand. The Alter Rebbe tells this same story on a different level and he talks about he quotes the story of King David, the person that cursed him. But he talks about how when you're sitting in shul and the person next to you is on his cell phone. <laughs> yeah, I personally, I'm not saying they're wrong, but I got a huge pet peeve with the shishers. You know the shishers? They can't wait till someone takes out a telephone. So you go, shh! <laughs> you know, that's like... That, that's the epitome of their prayer. I shish that guy. <laughs> so I'm not going to talk about that right now. But the bottom line is, there's someone next to you on the phone. Dr. Eber writes that the only reason why that exists is so that you should be propelled deeper into your prayer. Because the concentration you had until now is not drowning out that noise. You see, if you were in real concentration, you wouldn't have heard that. The fact that it, you heard it, the fact that it's annoying you, means that your concentration isn't deep enough. So all of a sudden, after prayer, instead of shishing this guy, he was wrong. Don't get me wrong. He was wrong. But you're going to look at him with a smile and probably think to yourself, thanks. You know what? You pushed me out of cruise control. I had a great prayer today because of you. So, the shalom and menucha comes from not having two polar opposite forces in our life. Because when you have two polar opposite forces in your life, even when you're on the right side, you're not peacefully at the right side. And that comes from Emunah. That comes from Emunah looking into a challenge and seeing opportunity. Why? Because God plus God equals God and God is good. So anything that happens to me is all about God plus God equals God. So God, what goodness are you pushing me into? That doesn't mean it's not difficult. That doesn't mean that we wouldn't rather not have the situation. We pray every morning, Don't bring me to challenges. We don't like this type of stuff. We don't ask for it. But when, like I told you before, when the stewardess announces, we have now shut the door of the plane. At that point, stop fetching. Stop telling God how much you really don't want this. Because God gave it to you. Shift. Go from 
praying that I shouldn't have challenges to praying that I see through this challenge. And that's okay. We're still talking about the lower dimension. We're talking about a perception of good and bad. We need to up it a little bit. Let's get into the bigger spiritual worlds. There is no good and bad. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was kicked out of the Garden of Eden because once he sinned, he couldn't be in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is purity. It could not tolerate sin. It's like when a princess stops by Burger King and gets one of those real oily, fried, yucky stuff. When she comes out, she regurgitates, not because she has something to say. It's because her fine stomach cannot digest that crude food. So to Atsilas, the Garden of Eden, it's just perfect. It had no potential of digesting Adam once he sinned. So it was regurgitated. It's interesting, by the way, because in the verse does not tell you that God will kick you out of Israel if he sins. It actually says the word, Va'aretz Saki. The, er, the land will regurgitate you. Let's go higher. Let's talk about a place where there is no evil. Let's talk about Chesed and Givura. In the world of Kabbalah, there is the right and the left. The right is kindness and the left is strictness. From kindness, there can come no dimension of perceived evil. From strictness, you can have perceived evil. So even though strictness is holy, but from strictness can come evil. Why so in the world of Kabbalah? Because kindness is revelation. In a place of revelation, you cannot have evil. Symptom is about contraction, concealment. From contraction and concealment, you could have evil. Let's talk about this. The word chesed means kindness. The word givura means strictness. Now, in the word givura, we actually also have the word gibor. Strength, strong. What I'm trying to share with you here is that while in the infrastructure of the evolution of the spherot emanations from the infinite to the finite, there is a right, a left, and a center, I want to introduce to you a level above that, which is the crown, and in the interior of the crown, which is called Atik, Atiko Kadisha, it says the following statement in Kabbalah. Les smala Baha'i Atika. There is no left in Atik. There's only right. Which is a little bit of a problem. Because later on you learn, and what does that mean? There is a Gvura. So what it means is, that Gvura, as it stands in Atik, is not concealment. It is not strictness. It is strength. When you have water, rain, right? You know that there's the tropical rain, and then there's the normal rain. As a New Yorker, I can tell you, it was very odd to come to Florida and find one of those rains where by the time you open your umbrella, you might as well just close it. It comes down, boom! You see, Gvura doesn't just mean strictness, it means strength. Strength can also be defined by an overwhelming overabundance of goodness. In the financial world, they call that a windfall. All of a sudden, you find out 
that Chaim Yanko passed away, you didn't even know he loves you, and he left you $13 million in his will. That's called Givurah. That's not called Chesed. Do you know why? Because if you do a research in Israel, I saw it about Israel, and I understand the same thing here in America. In Israel, most of the people that won Toto, which is the Israeli version of Lotto, ended up having to leave Israel because of financial disaster. If you open up financial books, you, you, you read your Susan Norman, you will find that windfalls are dangerous. Because if you didn't prepare yourself as a receptacle for this type of goodness, it actually will not be beneficial and constructive, it actually will drown you. But what we're dealing with is Tikboret HaChasadim. We're dealing with an overwhelming gush of revelation and goodness. In simple speaking, we call that spoiling your child. You give your child everything and wonder what went wrong. What went wrong is that you gave your child everything. What's so hard to figure out? That's Tikboret HaChasadim. Then there's the other side of this. And the other side is what I really want to focus on here for a moment. We said that Gvura is Tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is contraction, concealment, holding back. That is the source of what will later become evil negativity. But let's talk about this for a moment. Imagine, by the way, it's a Talmudic statement, I'm saying imagine. The Talmud says if one raindrop would touch another raindrop before it hit the ground, the world would be destroyed. You understand why, right? Take a two-hour rain, and instead of making it two hours, just in one shot. So what happens here? What happens here is that the rain is divided into drops. Very small drops. Is that Gvura or is that Chesed? It's Gvura. It's, it's contraction. We're only giving you a drop at a time. A drop at a time. That's Gvura. But you tell me, is it Gvura or is it Chesed? It's Chesed. Because oy vavoy, if it wasn't that way. Tsunami is gvura or chesed. It's obviously gvura. But to have pipes, small amounts, digestible amounts, is chesed. So all of a sudden we're understanding that when it says less smala bahayatika, there is no gvura, there is no left. What we're actually hearing is something that we say in Az Yashir. We say twice the word yimincha, your right side. And Rashi says, well, how can you have two rights? There's a right and a left. And the answer is that the power of Torah and mitzvahs is to be able to make left right. Givurah is no more holding back. It's the normal fashion of constructive giving. You need to hold back so that the giving becomes constructive and doesn't end up destructive. So all of a sudden you're hearing that Givurah in the world of Atik is actually right, not left. The whole reason for strictness is not because we want to hold back, it's because we want to give. But we want to give in a healthy manner. So now we're talking about Shalom and Menucha the peace and tranquility that's not just defined in the physical manifestation of right and left, goodness, evil, yetzatov, yetzahara, abundance of goodness, trying times. We're actually talking about in its very source, the real bird's eye view. 
where goodness and evil, pleasant times and challenging times, are all about the ten emanations. More specifically, the right, which is called chesed, kindness, and the left, which is called givurah, strictness. And here we're saying that in the ultimate point from which everything comes forth in the spirit, the inner dimension of the supernal crown, there is no left, but there is a left. No, it's not left, it's two rights. All of a sudden you realize that God's saying no to me, not because the answer is no, because the answer is yes. But the only way that this yes can be constructive is if you're told, whoa, 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 slow down. You ever try to feed a hungry man who hasn't seen food? You know what happened? We should never know from it. In the Holocaust, how many people died when they were redeemed? Because they, whoa, grabbed, ate, and they died. So the word no doesn't mean no, it means yes. Because the word yes would actually mean no. In the world of the example I gave you, giving them food wasn't giving them life, it was giving them death. To have said no, slow down, eat, take a break, come back, eat a little more. The guy's so mean, I didn't eat for months, just give it to me. No. Don't try this in court, but sometimes yes means no and no means yes. And that's what we're actually dealing with right now. We're dealing with the emunah that leads me to understand that in the world of God there is no left. There's two dimensions of right. It's giving and it's giving. But the dimension of the left giving is actually to us more important. It's what turns a tsunami into a normal irrigation system. It's what turns destruction into construction. And all of a sudden you have the true inner peace of knowing that in its very source there is no dichotomy. There is no right versus left and left versus right. But only that left is the glove upon right that makes it constructive, that makes it pleasant, that makes it digestible. So when we talk about emunah gives us peace and tranquility, we need to take off our baby shoes. We can't always live with this famous word tikkun. The reason why I'm peace and tranquility is because of tikkun. It is not healthy that every time you find out that your friend is suffering, by the way, we never do this to ourselves, we always do it to our friend. When our friend is suffering, we wonder, oh my God, what kind of tikkun did she need? But it's a good thing, she's going to tikkun. No. No, 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 no. Let's erase the word tikkun for a little bit. We use it a little too much. We justify a lot of pain and suffering with the word tikkun. Maybe it's time to get out of the worm's eye view. Maybe it's time to get into the bird's eye view. Maybe it's time to realize that we're not really bad people that need tikkun, 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 tikkun. And then when something goes right, we start worrying. Oh my God, I'm not being cleansed. Let's not do that. We're not bad people and we don't need tikkun. What we need to do is take off the worm's eyes 
and put on the bird's eyes. What we need to realize is that it's goodness in the happening. The Yetzirah is a loyal angel of God, begging you to see through him. I'm showing you temptation. You're a smart Jewish boy. See opportunity. I'm showing you no, but understand that it's yes. Take it easy. We want this to be right. We want this to be constructive. You rush and you put up a skyscraper and you don't wait for the foundation to settle. You have nothing to be happy about. That's a no situation, not a yes situation. We ask for water and you get a flood. That's not a good situation. So ultimately speaking, the job of Givurah is to take the abundance of good, the ultimate abundance of Tigboret HaChasadim, overwhelming good, and then put it through a contraction pipeline system so that we internalize it healthy rather than drown in it. Ever wonder why most of Hollywood, their kids are on drugs? That's what happens when you have chesed without givurah. That's what happens when any source of pleasure is at your fingertips available. You got to up the ante, up the ante, up the ante. But when you realize that givurah is what makes chesed chesed to us, all of a sudden you realize that God has never told a Jew the word no. So there are those that love to give this lesson on prayer. It's always a story. The guy came running to the rabbi. Rabbi, 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 God, I'm asking him, I'm asking him. How come he's not answering me? And the rabbi says, he did answer you. He told you no. That's a cute story, but let's take it again. The bird's eye view. God didn't tell you no. God told you yes. But yes, in a way that it won't hurt you. You see, God doesn't have a deficit problem. God has no problem to give and give and give and give and give and give and give. There is no spreading the wealth. There's enough wealth for everyone. All the wealth for everyone. All the health for everyone. So then why would God say no? Why would God say no? I tell this joke of this, uh, this guy who asked uh, God, God, it says in the verse that everything is yours. Every, all the gold. And he says, okay, can't you give me a little bit? It doesn't mean anything to you. And God says, there's another verse that says that a thousand years is a day. So just wait a day, I'll give it to you. <laughs> all I'm trying to bring out with this story is, is that we need to look from God's perspective before we decide that we understand why God does things. If we think that the reason why God does things is for the same reason that we do things. You need to ration. It's a long journey here. Can't eat up everything in the first part of the leg of the journey. God's got to make sure he has enough for the last mile of the journey. Not with God. So there is no reason for God to say no. So really what we're saying is no means yes. Give the most beautiful thing to a person when they're not ready for it and that becomes the most ugliest experience of life. 
So what I'm sharing with you is that the reason why Emunah gives you Shalom and Menucha is because the Emunah that we're talking about is that God is one. Everything is God and God is everything. There is no two forces pulling at me. There is no right and left in the holy Atik. In Atik there's only right. And left is what makes right really right. Because without left, right would be stuck up there. And if it came down to me, I would get hurt and drowned. So really up there, left is more right than right to me. Because without left, right would have been left. Right would have been a harsh judgment of drowning me in overwhelming goodness. While left says, don't drown the kid. Let me deliver this package. I understand him. You don't. You just give. You just give. You know the giver. Trust me. I know the receiver. We need to slow this down. You're going to hurt this kid. That is the ultimate peace that comes from Emunah. That is the ultimate tranquility that comes from Emunah. To know that God has never told me no. God has always and continues to love me and always say yes. That's it for today guys.